Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. This is a bonus episode. It's going to be a long episode. It is going to be uh, strangely disproportionate to the length of the film. <laughs> so if that that frustrates you, please don't feel the need to listen. Uh, this is just extra. There will be a regular episode coming out Thursday. But I thought that this was worth talking about on the regular podcast feed. Because, as I said on Instagram, in the like Miss Americana, Taylor Swift's documentary that came out last Friday, January 31st, uh, I didn't think it was just for fans. I think it slash hope it had a broader reach. And I hope a lot of you watched it. And I really wanted I really thought it was important and I really wanted to review it. I actually had no intentions of doing this episode, but then I saw it and I was floored. And it felt like there was too there there were too many important points to reiterate, and there were a lot of funny moments I wanted to highlight. And you know me, I, I live for the analysis. I, I live to make Taylor Swift feel like an AP Lit class, and uh, it, it it was kind of everything I never knew I needed. Um, I just I really really loved the documentary, and you know everything Taylor Swift does that feeds into the Taylor Swift. Uh, enterprise of of music is serving a persona but this wasn't about her persona it was about her as a person too and i think up until this point the the former was far more common that the you know footage and interviews we get that kind of serve the part of her that isn't relatable her immense celebrity um, you know, that's the part that people are so willing to accuse of being fake, of being calculated, of playing the victim, whatever, all the things she and we know, unfortunately, all too well. Um, and I was like, I was honestly concerned this documentary would be like, like restitution for not being more politically active before, like overcorrecting, over explaining why she wasn't. It would really be like, uh, trying to really build up her activism and, and position her in this new political light. And I thought it was actually supposed to be more like image based and it really wasn't. And I was pleasantly surprised at how honest and sincere and raw it was. And th this wasn't about controlling her image whatsoever. It was just about what it was about. And I, you know, mean that in a sense of this wasn't about like selling albums. This wasn't about positioning her in a specific light so you'll take a specific action from it it was a lot less self-serving i thought and way more serving to not just fans but like the general public which up until this documentary i don't think she's ever felt like she owes anything to the general public and her choice has been to hyper focus on the fans and the positivity because the the problem with a polarizing figure in and of itself is that love or hate and in this instance, the general public, you know, assuming they fall in the, the hate bucket or, you know, they're not in your favor for her to open herself up to them with content, not just directed toward fans, I think is a really interesting choice that does show her actual journey to gaining her own personal approval and her working on her self-esteem and her working on what she said, which is happiness without anybody else's input. This is the most vulnerable thing she's ever done, paired with opening it up to an audience that she previously would have been terrified to open up to. And uh, I mean, guys, this is going to be hard for me because I, I, I just have the I could 
I could talk Taylor Swift theory all day. You know, I love to wax poetic. This is my problem. I know a lot of like if you've been here before, you're aware of this. But I do want to like hit the important points that are far more uh, important than my points. Uh, so I will try to move through. But first, like overall, I, you know, as a fan, I, of course, lived for the moments of like her improvised brilliance, her assembling songs together her her you know spitting out lyrics to ultimately transition to seeing them performed in front of 50,000 people you know that those were all so satisfying as a fan but further if i wanted to just satisfy myself as a fan i'd want more behind the scenes of the album creation to see more about her romance her friends and family um you know the scoop that we all always want but i i was almost relieved to not have the distraction of those things um so we could focus on the bigger stories that are also somehow more subtle and they get overshadowed by some of those more fun gossipy things and i know some fans were hoping for you know a little bit more scoop and a little less i've seen it positioned as negativity um but i think it's important to like i i have the personal pet peeve of addressing an issue um or highlighting something that's wrong and being accused of being negative or a cynic. I think that's such a cop out and it's such a deflection. So the people around you don't have to deal with or discuss something that isn't pleasant. And I think the entire point of this documentary and something I've also learned as a woman over time is uh, so often we base our entire personalities off of being pleasant and being positive and you know, focusing more on the comfort of those around us than our own, you know, truth and conviction. That's no way to live and that's no way to help people. And I just challenge anybody to who writes anything off as like complaining or making herself the victim or same with people who are harping on her being too negative during her billboard speech or whatever. The, the point that's being missed here when you automatically assume that is that our culture teaches women that it's our job to exist to please other people. And when we don't, we feel worthless at times. And in order to protect ourselves from, you know, the, the criticism from not people pleasing, we learn to monitor everything we do and say and how we look Um is a form of controlling others' response to us. And I think that that is like Taylor Swift's story here, is that that, that knee-jerk criticism, while not always our fault, is, can kind of be a form of the, the internalized misogyny that we're trying to combat through telling women stories like this. And can you just, you know, not be a fan, not like her music, have some aspect of her personality you find off-putting? Yes, of course, it's fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Um, but what I mean is I think that even I myself sometimes don't even realize when my instinct is like fighting with this noise that I am confusing with my instinct, but is actually the product of being told something for years and years that isn't, isn't true. And I have to deconstruct it. Um, so yeah, I'm not by any stretch calling any non-Taylor Swift fan a misogynist, but what I mean is I do see a lot of the behavior happening that this documentary is about, ironically, when people don't even know that this documentary is about people who react in that way. You know what I mean? And the other piece too, that, you know, 
Well, I mean, like, let's call a spade a spade. Like, I, I am a privileged white woman speaking about a documentary highlighting another privileged white woman's internal struggles. And I know these problems could be far worse and they look so different for everybody. And so many aspects, you know, so many sub bullets of these problems are things that I nor Taylor Swift will ever probably have to deal with. I think the problem is when people claim that they can understand the full spectrum of what different marginalized groups go through um, as it relates to an issue like sexual assault, like prejudice, like sexism, whatever. I think everyone's experiences look very, very, very different. And I think that this documentary is important not because it's fully representative of of the full spectrum that the breadth and depth of issues that exist um within these problems that people have to endure especially those that don't have the same advantages as she does you know what i'm trying not to do is fall into the trap of you know dismissing or invalidating someone's personal experience because it doesn't pass every test of comparison you know by nature it can't and i i hope the takeaway here is isn't that some privileged white woman is complaining about problems, but rather a woman of privilege has realized it's her responsibility to to be forthcoming about her own problems, her own demons, her own experience uh, with sexism and mental health and assault. And like, I think she could hoard these lessons for fear of how they'd be received or she can share them and hope that since she has the opportunity to reach people, and that's an understatement of the century, she has the opportunity to reach more people than perhaps anybody she could serve as a form of representation of a person who deals with similar problems and you know representation and inclusivity take on so many different forms and i think in this instance is particularly for people that are feeling voiceless or um falling victim to the very thing we're combating here which is minimizing problems as things like women just have to deal with i think that she you know her simply acknowledging things like the presence of systemic misogyny, speaking out about the dehumanizing process of an assault trial, of about body dysmorphia and an eating disorder, about mental health, regardless of her size or scale and experience of these topics, her acknowledgement of these things in this public format matters. Because by not minimizing her experience as things that just women have to deal with or it could be worse, other people struggling won't minimize theirs either. And more importantly, they might just feel empowered to change them. And I just think it's important to remember it's not always our job to tell people how, you know, it's not ever our job to tell somebody how they should feel about their own experience. And I I think in many ways, you know, not being active politically, I mean, it's it's emblematic of privilege in and of itself, um, given that the system's working in your favor. You're not having to actively fight as hard as maybe many others are. but I think in telling this story, it's going to incite a lot of people that may be inactive or dormant because of fear of speaking out or going against their family or whatever it may be. I, I think it's going to, it's not a popular story to tell one of, I was worried about my image. I was worried about being further buried in the sand after my reputation was taken down. I was worried about my management and my dad thought I'm a product of country music. These things aren't adversities that people deal with that are normal by any stretch, and they're good problems to have comparatively. But the by her opening up and letting us into this process, it it just shows that these things can be hard 
in different forms for anybody. And there, it's not about why she didn't do it, but it's about um, experiencing something your, yourself firsthand and about growing. As you grow, you get more empathy and compassion for others. And you get to a place where you almost can't not say something. And how if, you know, all of the people telling you to keep your mouth shut, um, if they're 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 louder than your internal voice to speak out for the benefit of yourself and others, people like Taylor Swift that people look up to can be a huge, huge catalyst. And uh, I commend her for her candor in this documentary. And I think that so many of what she's so many things that she talks about are incredibly important. And I'd argue that beyond a, a lot of the major issues she discusses, what I loved about it was the musing about the the subtleties uh, in life that we deal with that, you know, there's not going to be a there's not going to be a, a trade organization or a charity designed at helping to relieve women from their incessant desire to people, please and seek approval. But it really is a problem and it really is rooted in a deeper root cause um, of the expectations and the pressure often bestowed upon us. And it doesn't mean it's not worth talking about. So, you know, anyways, I don't even know why I was taught. What was I talking about? I guess partial disclaimer, but also, you know, I I already know what people who are responding well to the documentary are saying. And I just normally wouldn't start out on the, you know, even worrying about or addressing that. But I think like there's a just a true irony here of people not realizing they're doing the very thing that this documentary is trying to speak out against. Anyway, uh, this is already going <laughs> to be a miracle if I make it through this. Um, you know, OK, so going to the doc, I watching this was like realizing all you ever wanted was right there in front of you to quote Red. <laughs> it's kind of I think that's like the third time I've done that. Like, you know, she was really filling in a blank space. I just it's hard. There's just a lot of opportunities in the Facebook group. There's a lot of discussion about Taylor Swift puns for her parties on Friday. And I saw many of you did them. And that's amazing. Um, somebody asked in a Q&A at the live show what my Taylor Swift puns would be. And all I could think of at the time was um, burgers done all too well or medium rare. I was there. And like, that's just like a shitty answer. And I'm just so proud of you guys for being so much more clever than I ever could be. And I honestly wish I had a viewing party for this now that I know what it is. But anyway, uh, I guess, I don't know. The documentary was kind of like a Taylor Swift song in a sense. It was it was confessional. It was sharp. It was highly descriptive. She has the ability both in songs and, you know, in these interviews to articulate things in a way that like almost make you forget for a moment that she's not only incredibly famous, but a force beyond anything that her demeanor would ever suggest. Um, it, it it was like specific enough to be about her life and to let us in just enough. Um, but to also, it also left a lot out. Like I talked about earlier, you know, it left out a lot of this stuff like fans would specifically love. Um, and I think inevitably, you know, her guard has gone up over the years as it should. Uh, I, though I was left wanting to know more, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think towing that line of relatability works because if it was too hyper specific, we may not identify with it as as strongly. Um, and I don't know, the way that she's able to explain things, I just, I feel like we feel interchangeable with her as she articulates her experiences. And it could easily breach territory of issues only famous people have. Um, and I kind of thought going into it, I was kind of prepared 
to be more voyeuristic, to be an observer. Uh, but I came out of it. I don't know, like, I thought it was just going to be entertainment. Like, I really didn't expect to have any sort of feelings toward it beyond just being like, oh, my God, I love Taylor Swift. She's so talented. I love her songs. Like, same old. Um, and I went into it with that sort of observational mindset. But I came out of it being brought into, like, the inner workings of something, you know, far less shiny than her career, far less salacious than her personal life, but so much more important in that. Until now, I didn't really see her as a woman in a period of, of self-discovery who is undergoing the same process we all do, independent of our success or perceived success. And it jumped around quite a bit. Uh, it, but I think that was kind of the point. Um, it didn't have one specific arc or specific point. <laughs> um, it, it covered the overarching issues like sexual assault, political involvement, body dysmorphia, and, and the like. Um, but I think that it was kind of like disorganized and inconclusive because to, you know, something she said about women being able to be a lot of different things and not being penalized for being multifaceted. We can care about things separately and all at once. We can have our lucid moments where we claim we're, we're absolved of some crime that we commit in the next breath, as she did when she apologized for her own soapbox. It felt purposefully um, inconclusive and contradictory to itself, as is somebody's road to self-discovery and as is the thought process of somebody who's trying to mantle, a, dismantle a belief system that is so, despite you being very aware of it being there, it's so ingrained you know, within you that it's easily confused with instinct. And it is a real journey when you kind of get to that point in your life where you're realizing a lot of what you thought to be true is actually just projections of other people's experiences. And then once you get your own experiences and realize your gut reactions are so different than what people maybe told you your response would be or what you were maybe believed to feel, you endure this entire recalibration of trying to figure out your own moral code, your own idea of right and wrong, your own true and false. And um, I think that through these candid moments, uh, you know, with some more, I think I'd say more than the documentary crew. I felt like a lot were like home movies and like cell phone footage uh, where like, I don't know the the timelines were all over the place. So I don't know if a documentary crew was with it the whole time. Um, but I, I thought, I thought the way she talked throughout this was so different than she appears in normal interviews. Um, I thought she was a little more subdued obviously more unfiltered she wasn't choosing her words so incredibly carefully but i think it illustrated that she just is fundamentally so articulate um and it felt like the first time she was able to share more of her inner monologue and more so than that comfortably admit her shortcomings in a way that i don't think she's ever wanted to do before and i don't think i, I say that because i don't think she didn't want to bait people she's heavily scrutinized as is and letting people in to her own insecurities means soliciting their input. And I think the hard part for famous people um, is when criticism, you know, starts to stray from your work and your art and like bleeds into the things you can't change that are deeply personal, um, your personality, your appearance. And I think that like there has to be a degree of separation and people will get frustrated with me when I suggest that I think that, um, you know, though her brand is designed in us feeling like we're her best friend and we know her so well and she's the same person on stage off stage at a meet and greet in her house 
I've always really wondered where Taylor Swift the artist ends and Taylor Swift the person begins. And um, I think most fans, you know, the impression is that they're one and the same. And it's not that she's not genuine, but that degree of, you know, relatability and uh, sincerity is kind of a strategy in and of itself. I, she's the one that I love how she t- said I'm an explainer, not an enigma. Like, obviously, I'm the explainer of all explainers. Like, I'm just I'm never going to be able to be that person you're hyper intrigued by. <laughs> um because I I don't know. It's just, it doesn't, it, leaving people guessing is not of interest to me. I think at a point you don't have a choice because when you over-explain, you then invite opinions in that really hurt you and then you get bitter and kind of close yourself off a bit. Um, but I think that over the years, she probably changed as a person, but that persona she developed at the beginning, you know, very sweet and sincere and kind and the good girl, needing the pat on the head, somebody whose fulfillment solely lied in approval of others. Um, You know, despite some of the pesky narratives she experienced over time, she, she got overarching approval, I'd argue. Like she, she had a lot of really annoying um, things. The media said about her frustrating sexist uh, labels that she had a very hard time escaping that weren't always fair but I feel like she really did net positive, and especially in the 1989 era, was really on top of the world. Um, and it was interesting hearing her talk about how when that public favor was taken away, you know, it's kind of like anybody's rock bottom when you have very little to lose. That's kind of when you actually take the time to sit with yourself. And she sat with herself and examined why she is the way she is, why she thinks the way she thinks. And uh, you know, as she said it toward the end, the old adage that famous people stop maturing at the age when they get famous. I totally believe this because she, like, I think she's been OK because she was already a pretty centered person. And when she was a young woman and her her parents have been so involved. Um, and I think a lot of why famous people lose their minds is because there isn't really any space provided for that type of self-reflection and growth. You operate in kind of an echo chamber of reinforcement. And if fans respond to the way you are, why rock the boat? Um, But I think that, you know, as evidenced by the one thing she couldn't control in a career where she so heavily controlled her image, you know, the downfall of her reputation forced her to rebuild. And while I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, I think it like almost freed her in a weird way. I, I think that strangely, you know, when you're sidestepping controversy, it's kind of a stressful place to be at that scale. I'm not speaking from my career experience here, not the same, but if with her level of reach and the microscope she's under, I'd imagine that trying to sidestep any, you know, controversy is actually quite stressful and trying to not say or do the wrong thing is quite stressful. And some part of me wonders that sometimes in, you know, if that controlled perfection is what kind of holds you hostage. And when you disappoint people, you almost surprisingly find an element of freedom in that you got it over with. You lived anyway. And the stakes aren't so high. You know what I mean? I, I like I don't want to say that that needed to happen because I think what happened to her was cruel and unnecessary. Uh, But I do think that there are too many times when famous people, probably without the cushion of the people around them trying to prop them up and propel them forward because they are a money making machine, 
I think that people do hit extreme emotional lows that they're almost not able to experience in full. But hers was pretty unavoidable. The Taylor Swift is over party number one hashtag trending in the world. R.A.P. Taylor Swift on a bridge. Truly, there could not have been more people standing by and not only actively participating in this takedown, but celebrating it, which is a level of dark that I don't think anybody is ready for. And I cannot even imagine what that was like. What I loved about it, um, because I spend so much time defending her, uh, I, I get I, I get frustrated by the joy some people seem to get out of antagonizing Taylor Swift fans. Um I mean, I grow frustrated by super fans also that antagonize people like me who are fans but not stands. And I've learned there's a difference. But my argument is that I've never thought Taylor wanted the blind worship. I think she just wants to be treated fairly and to be allowed to make mistakes and be allowed to learn and evolve and separate from those mistakes. And, the, you know, the public so rarely lets her forget when she missteps. And she's been plagued with these labels for so long, even before 2016 and mocking her awards face. She dates guys just to write songs about them, you know, that she's always playing the victim. She parades her girl squad, whatever. Uh, I I. I I'm grateful for this documentary because I've, I finally have a resource to be like, it, watch this. And if you don't like her now, like, I can't help you. Like, I understand how it's hard. It, like, it can be hard to not give a lot of, you know, grace to like a character or a persona, the version of her in interviews and music videos and the like. But I do think the documentary did humanize her in the way that the point isn't to love her or hate her. I think the point was to, like, present a realistic depiction of a person who's largely, like, a work in progress and who's finally, like, relinquishing control of her image in favor of trying to actually affect change. And, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think that both in the big stories and the subtleties, she probably is going to, like, really reach a lot of people and, and make them think. Because, you know, whether you've experienced sexual assault and eating disorder whether you're politically active or not uh, those bigger issues are one thing but the subtleties i mentioned like i think so many people too just it's easy to normalize and ignore in the face of more pressing issues in the world like having an incessant need for approval the, the, the tug of war that she talks about for how hard it is for women to be like liked um self-loathing with body image standing up to her dad the losing game of people pleasing the loneliness of fame that so many of us crave like the plate tectonics of your 20s going into your 30s, you know, these changes are slow and at times unnoticeable, but make a huge difference when things start to solidify. And um, I know I changed so much in my 20s, and I think this is such an interesting process that isn't earth shattering by any means. But, um, you know, it, you know, as Brad Paisley, uh, prophet Brad Paisley says to the world, you might just be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. I think what shatters we have to acknowledge, uh, even if something is not earth shattering to the rest of the world, it doesn't mean it doesn't shatter our individual worlds. And uh, we got to go easy on ourselves in that sense. Um, I hope you know I'm kidding about Brad Paisley. He's my arch nemesis. JK. Also, one time I said on a podcast, he and his wife were no longer together. That was incorrect. And for that, I am sorry. Anyway, what was I talking about? <laughs> uh yeah anyways i just like i i think i i'm pumped to like have people that aren't necessarily traditional fans watch it because well didn't she brought up like uh reading brene brown and stuff didn't she and what i've loved learning from her uh and i think is like a really powerful lesson to learn and i think really is the way to combat 
people accusing you of having a particular agenda is that true vulnerability can only exist when there's no guaranteed outcome. Because the point isn't to serve you, it's to serve other people. And that you're going to be honest uh, despite backlash, not modifying your message to minimize backlash. And I think up until now, that's what she's done. Uh, and while there was nothing like that overarchingly crazy or offensive, I guess maybe if you're like a major Trump supporter, you would be. Uh, I thought, I don't know, I almost thought she could have made it more like woke Taylor, or like pandering. But it really, really was like the process of her trying to like navigate and figure out how to like get to this place where she can stop being, you know, Taylor Swift, the person who controls her image at all costs, but Taylor Swift, the human being. And I think what allows us to operate in like such extremes with polarizing figures is, you know, like we make them so one dimensional and not necessarily real. And it's like, like, like she's so commodified in, in so many ways, like watching the couple like that guy propose in front of her. Like when I saw the picture of it several months ago, I was like, oh, that's really sweet. Um, but when I watched it on video, I was like, she's a prop. Like that was so sad and it was so weird. And it, and even though it was based on a level of adoration, I guess it was so hollow that she was in this, these people's biggest life moments, just standing there kind of being ignored, almost being used for the photo. I don't know. I thought it was, I thought that was very strange. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was a story of like, I just, I think we all want the same things. I think we want to be not exalted, not execrated, but to be respected. I, I think we want to be treated fairly. I think we all want to make a difference in some way, have some sort of legacy to, to you know, maintain our own personal boundaries, but not be too closed off and to be allowed the grace to make mistakes and to evolve. And beyond that, like we want to be loved. And I think she does, too. And I don't think that's bad, but wanting to be liked and wanting to be loved are different things and i think love is more fulfilling and you realize the only type that actually works is reciprocated you know fan love is more so adoration love love is putting the most weight on the opinions of people that matter and that are in your immediate life and while public perception and approval does matter to a degree for a career it doesn't do much for a soul and uh I think beyond just her wanting to be loved, I think uh, like the other half of the story is trying to figure out how to be loved by yourself. And um, as she said, you know, to achieve happiness without anybody else's input. And um, what was funny is I was reading some reviews and this point was unsurprisingly missed by a male critic. Um, I think he's from the Atlantic. A guy said, uh, here's the engine of Swift's narrative, her desire to be liked colliding with people not liking her. It's the ultimate celebrity problem, but the doc is smart about injecting it with social meaning by making the case that it stems from gender. This leads me to the first part of the documentary. Are we at half hour? Yikes, yikes, yikes. Um, I already said a lot. I mean, you know, I wanted to kind of give you my overarching opinions before we get into specificity. But the thing is, OK, dude, um, your desire to be liked colliding with people not liking you isn't a celebrity problem and it's not a superficial problem and the doc isn't smart by having to inject some sort of manufactured social meaning into it like on purpose it actually does have great social meaning that is so often belittled as evidenced by this very review um the when we open and it's kind of this broader discussion of approval outside input being a good girl accolades people pleasing 
um, you know, I think, well, first of all, one of the biggest arguments against Taylor Swift, in my experience, is her being called fake. And in this documentary, she's kind of saying, like, yeah, I was. But not because I wanted to mislead anybody, but because as a woman, I have an incessant need to, you know, be uh, to seek approval, to people please, to be what people want me to be. And to protect myself, I had to find a way to constantly behave in a way that, like, society told me was okay, was acceptable. That, you know, I needed to represent this sort of like good girl to be accepted. And I think she wanted acceptance. And I think the irony is like people always called her fake and it always bothered me because I just don't think like being polite is necessarily fake. I don't think that, you know, kind of shifting your the way you treat different circumstances is anything like that's in vain. But I just think that it's um, something that we don't even sometimes know what we're doing. I don't even know if she knew she was doing it at the time. Um, but we just monitor everything we're doing and we think it's our responsibility, you know, to arrange our faces and bodies in a way that other people find pleasing. It doesn't matter how we're feeling that day. We just want to avoid displeasing other people. And I just think somehow people could sniff that out a little bit, you know, uh, and I think she's kind of like, yeah, I think a lot of it is kind of an act, but I didn't really know if I had a choice and that I completely understand. Um, I think that, okay, so one of the, the first couple scenes we open with, well, it's a kind of montage of, uh, her throughout, you know, her career masking radio stations to play her music, you know, the very beginning being excited about being 60th on the billboard charts. There's a really sweet clip of her as a kid. Like something about it, I have to like clutch my stomach because like I see, I don't know. It's just it's pre it's precious and it's it's like I could see in her that she was like this is about this is a song about a girl who's different and I'm like you're the one that thinks you're different and like what a beautiful form of self expression and like I just like I don't know I that awkward little girl. There's just that one scene where she's playing guitar, not the one where she's like I just wrote this five minutes ago where. But the one where she's 12 or 13, she still has like, you know, her crooked baby teeth. I, I don't know if I've ever seen footage of her with braces. Um, and she's wearing a choker and like a polo, I think. And it's just it's it's darling and it's pure. And I think it shows, you know, her at her core. I think a lot of a lot of artists and creatives, I think a lot of people who seek applause, as she said, are perhaps the most insecure and like feel the most different and, and require the most validation. And as a person sitting here talking into a mic, I think it's safe to say why that hit me hard. Um, we then go into a montage of her, like a lot of like focus on shape shifting of like outfits. <laughs> I love, I do love when she does that. Um, I think it starts by she's in short alls and she's going through her journals and she has so many. And I thought they'd all be like more sophisticated, like moleskin vibes. But I love how it, you can kind of like see she's been doing this her whole life. Like one is like a padlock and it's called like bitch sessions. And I was like, you know what? I take comfort knowing that you also used to like grab stuff in the hodgepodge shelf at Marshall's and like toss it in your mom's cart. That's where all the journals and pens and like weird desk organization supplies are before you get into the age where you primarily spend all of your time on the shelf where all the skincare is leaking um a lot of marshall's is just sticky but i love it uh she then kind of goes into talking about how she was so like fueled by approval and her entire belief system was like on being good her entire moral code was about like just being a good girl a nice girl 
and um, we go through the montage and we net out with her at the Reptor. Um, people are so jacked up that she uses Q-tips. I don't get why people are so excited by that. Isn't that like the most human? Like, don't we like I assume her ears produce wax. Is it because you're not supposed to use Q-tips? I'm not really sure. Um, she has Pepto-Bismol. She has like plaque toothpickers. I noticed she had a lot of essential water, a lot of Voss at one point. I really was trying to zoom in on that table. I'm dying to know what her writer consists of. Um, I, like a true loser, you know, didn't know that, like, if you're performing somewhere, like, your meal is comped. I um, ordered, like, a Caesar salad. And then I was like, God, chicken's like an extra $7. Should I go for it? And I was like, I guess I am performing tonight. I'll go for the protein. It was like lamenting my glasses of Sauvignon Blanc and my uh, chicken add-on. And, like, they, the venue covers it. And I guess you usually, like, tell people, like, what you want in advance. They, like, have it, like a writer, which is, like, LOL. Like, I know I don't need a writer. I'm not, like, a real performer. But it's just, like, a funny thing that um, I never thought about. I don't know why I just brought that up. Oh, because whenever, when that happened, I was like, ooh, I should develop, like, what, like, what are my, what's my list? What, 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 what's, what are my must-haves as it relates to, dining in a comedy club <laughs> i'm just kidding um but yeah every stadium taylor swift goes to they have to have like everything she could ever want and the setup was just a real hodgepodge of toiletries uh i assume we weren't seeing the other side which i hope was all sorts of food and drink and you know charcuterie boards i wonder um if she ever has a glass of wine before she performs i don't sing but i personally couldn't a lot of my friends that do things publicly, like absolutely cannot have a single drink till afterwards. And I find that interesting. Um, I do not share that problem. But uh, if it ever becomes a problem, please alert me. In the spirit of full transparency, I did just get up and get a glass of wine. It is 6 p.m. Uh, but, you know, you bring it up and I'm like, eh, that would be nice right now. Anywho, uh, we move to the scene of her wearing like uh, a silk sock. Uh, with Meredith Grey in what appears to be a hotel suite. There is a small telescope in the background. This does not look like her interior style, but she does seem to be alone, and it's almost like she propped up her cell phone for this moment. She discusses how she is keeping herself busy uh, when Tree calls her her publicist because she is waiting to hear about Grammy nominations, and this would be for her album Reputation. Tree kind of hesitates. She's like, I'm waiting to get the full list of nominations um but as of now you are omitted from the three big categories of album record and song so she's not nominated for album of the year song of the year or record of the year her immediate response which was perhaps the most telling thing i've seen is this is good this is fine i just need to make a better record i don't know about you I'm not feeling 22. I was screaming at my television. I was like, Reputation is perfect. <laughs> I was so upset because I think what kills fans, this is what probably separates takeaways of fans from non fans, is that it crushes you when people overvalue uh, objective third party accolades and ignore things that are so, so special and sacred to fans that are such high quality and it killed me that her next statement was i just need to make a better record um that is what i all i know i'm a, a broken record but the self-sabotaging cycle of the ambitious like 
you just always have to outdo yourself and therefore you're always going to disappoint yourself because you're just not going to be that impressed with yourself. And when you don't get the validation you so hoped for and when you overvalue validation, um, it's 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 a type of it's self-destructive, quite honestly. Uh, you you have to learn to come from a place of not only diversifying your sources of reassurance, but also being confident in the quality and caliber of your work and what you're doing and in your honest effort, so much so that the approval matters much less. I don't think any of us would ever be able to operate without it, period. Um, but I even think in like small ways, like in my relationship, even for example, like I'm a person that needs so much fucking reassurance. <laughs> I am so nervous about everything I do, every word I say, this, that, or the other. And I think that it maybe the thing I wasn't really saying whenever people are like, why do you block your husband? Why don't you like, uh, you know, why do you discourage him from listening to your podcast? It's not because of him. It's because if I bring him into it, it will solicit an endless loop of feedback I'd require. And I don't want our relationship to turn into talking about that. And I also realize that a lot of my quest for affirmation is pointless <laughs> and is is a problem. And it's not really rooted in that changing anything or adding any value. It's just more so a root cause of me needing to work on a lot of my own insecurity with anything I create. And um, I think I've noticed in requiring less input from people as it relates to work, A, I've produced much more and I've taken a lot more risk and I've um, just been able to use the barometer of like, do I feel good about this and does it matter and do will my audience feel good about this? But also, I think that when people aren't burdened by your need for reassurance, they can love you more freely. And I think that in you know situations friendships relationships family stuff when i've um relied less on that it's just strengthened the relationship in a weird way um i think it it's hard to be on the receiving end of somebody that's insecure and needs a lot of reassurance because you do reassure them but then it's never enough and it has to be more and it has to be consistent and it's almost like it gets offensive at a point because you're like, well, I told you I thought it was great. Why are you accusing me of lying? Or why do you think, why do you not believe me? Or like, you know what I mean? It gets a little bit murky in that sense. And I think uh, I can totally see that side of it, having been on the receiving end of people that are even more extreme versions of me. And I think in my case, when I'm working on something about myself, sometimes when I don't, when I'm not really at a place yet where I can minimize or fix the behavior, I block it from being able to happen as often and in eliminating people whose opinions I care too much about um, from being involved with the thing that if I knew that they were listening to, I would hear their opinions so much more loudly than anybody else's. I just need to eliminate that possibility so I can work more freely. And I think it's a balance of not always, you know, blaming our, ourselves for the way we are, but like working around the way we are. I honestly don't know if I'll ever get to a place where I'm not feedback and approval driven. It sounds like she's been better at that. Uh, but it's anyways, I say that because it's something I'm working on. I think it's hard to like 
talk through why this documentary like meant a lot and was important and why it stood out to me without telling my own stories. And I'm sorry if I'm talking about myself too much. Um, but hey, you know, I'm, I'm, why am I here if not to share my lessons learned? It's the honestly the telling people not to listen, especially at the beginning. It's like what she said about her uh, the spiral when she, you know, looks at photos of herself with like eating just ch- to change the channel. I just sometimes we're not there yet, but we can at least change the channel. Um, and I think that's an important takeaway for me. Anyway, not about me. I'm actually watching this in the background on mute. Um, just in case I catch something I'm not talking about. And this, I actually misplaced the scene that I thought was so gut-wrenching with little uh, 12-year-old Taylor. Hold on. Sorry, not this part. This part. (laughs) This is a song I wrote yesterday, and it's about a girl who's just different. And I really like it because it's just so happy. So this is called Lucky You. So she's age 13. But to be honest with you, this song was seriously finished five minutes ago. So, you know, I usually have these things memorized, but... I just finished it five minutes ago, so... Let's watch the tide change the waves into the sand Are you kidding? That is... <laughs> she's 13 years old. Like, call it what you want. She's a, She's brilliant. She's a... By nature, she's just a fundamentally talented person. And I think, you know, given not about me, but uh, my being skewered for writing a super intense poem about inner beauty at age 13 <laughs> that was published in my local paper. Um, I a, relate to the earnestness of her and the pride she that emits from her face playing it for my parents as somebody wants approval she like plays it and sings it like looks up and you can almost see her wanting a reaction and like i basically only wrote poems yeah to express my feelings but also because i wanted the applause of my parents i lived for it um and her words let's watch the tide it's called it's a song she wrote when she was 13 called smoky black nights let's watch the tide chase away the waves uh onto the sand i wonder if a sad heart can feel the warmth of my hand i was like what we then you know there's different scenes of her singing um and through kind of the early years the tim mcgraw process the fearless years speak a little bit of speak now um but then we get to 2009 and uh I cannot say I remember her arriving to the VMAs in a bippity boppity boo pumpkin carriage. Um, it's <laughs> it's a hilarious level of extra she would not do now. I mean, even just as a matured woman, but like, it's just funny. It's it's a little extra, but this was the meat dress era where spectacle was the uh, name of the game on the red carpet. Anyway, 
they show the clip of um, the Moon Man, the best female video, going to Taylor Swift. She's 19. She is so happy. This is kind of the era where people make fun of her award face a lot. And she goes up there. And I have trouble watching this because, guys, I have not rewatched this scene in full since 2009 when I watched it live. I was living in New York. And she pl- the, the uh, she opened the VMAs by singing You Belong With Me on the subway. And I remember this so vividly because I was absolutely enraged with myself for hating public transit at that moment. Just thinking of me being able to catch her singing You Belong With Me and popping out in Times Square or Radio City, wherever the hell they, they, the awards were. Anyway, I remember sitting there watching this and like... It's like, where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you when I'ma Let You Finish happened? I I was so mad. I like, and at this point, she wasn't the force that she is now. And I was like a fan of her music. Um, and I loved her, but like I just I don't know. Like that that was so shocking in person. And I have trouble watching things where people are like sad or disappointed. I can't do it. And I never watched it again. And I've seen clips of it as like people allude to it, but they played in full. Perhaps the worst part, which is her standing there with the mic after, not knowing what to do, looking around in that echoey room. And what I didn't know until I watched this documentary is that she thought everybody was booing her. And to win a big award, one of your, you know, first big ones, and to have that feeling of such... Uh, blazing inadequacy um, to have somebody who you respect in the business make a fool of you to just I don't know like I, I that level of public embarrassment period much less paired with the thought that you're not good enough your work's not good enough you don't deserve to be here uh, to be fair that level that like sort of inferiority complex like an early stage in a career when you're still trying to garner respect that would be like there would be a chip that would just move in on on in a rent control department in perpetuity on my shoulder, never leaving, no reason to. It's just like whether by my own doing or not, that's a vulnerability I would forever have and a thing I was trying to correct for. And I and I very much understand this. And it was very hard to watch that again. I will say it was it was cringe. I like to. um I like to cringe, but I like to cringe laugh. I don't like to cringe cry. You know what I mean? They're two different things. Um, And then she goes into talking about it being a formative experience. She's wearing the linen button down on the red lip and the hoops that she was wearing the day when she did an Instagram live about. I think that was the day she announced Lover. Uh, Or at least maybe the journals or something. It's then like a montage of her playing All Too Well. And then it goes into Out of the Woods. And her Grammy opening that year um, with the super short hair and like the bedazzled one piece. And like, guys, I've said it once. I'll say it again and again and again. Out of the Woods is so good. It really it, it really transports you in headphones and the bridge is outstanding. And I think it was like a promotional single, not like a radio single. Um, but it, I don't know. It kind of always reminds me of Savage Gardens. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I can't explain it. Anyways, I love Out of the Woods. I think it's an incredible song and it just didn't ever get the credit it deserves, but I'm really glad she opened 
the Grammys with it. It's kind of how I felt about her singing I Did Something Bad, I think it was last year at the AMAs. Some of the, the these we need, some of these songs are so damn good. The her worst song on, you know, her album is better than most people's lead singles. And they just don't see the light of day uh often enough. And anyways, the point of this scene is is showcasing the height of her career, 1989 World Tour. Guys, the the songs of 1989, the outfits, the era, the squad, the uh you know the the whole feel of the tour the in i mean the the celebrities she would have walk up and down the runway the guests you know she would have come play her surrounding herself with an army of friends the you know her being everywhere with calvin harris which lol she said she had nobody to call after she won the grammy and calvin harris that night literally posted an instagram of her accepting the award in her uh, color block pink and red number saying congratulations to my beautiful girlfriend <laughs> I, I you, there's very few things that will convince me of the legitimacy of that relationship just because of even how she's written it off i don't know what it's for but like i it it really was interesting that she felt like she didn't have somebody to call or share it with because i'd argue her point was the um emptiness at the top the loneliness you feel uh when you've hit, hit re- got You've got when you got the thing you've always wanted to get and you don't feel how you expected to feel. It is horrible. It's the most sinking feeling paired with what you hoped would be the greatest joy of your life. And that paradox is, a you know, again, part of this terrible cycle that ambitious people need to keep themselves in check about because without any true celebration, it's it's very it's very easy to to spiral into pretty consistent despair. We need wins. We need things to look forward to. And we need to adequately celebrate ourselves. But that said, she did have a person um, that understood what it's like being super famous, being a bit of a spectacle, being at like the top of their game. You know what I mean? So even though I think she didn't mean necessarily romantically, I do think it's interesting. She didn't like there was no mention of him. Um, but yes, that for me was a tough pill to swallow. It was a hard part of the doc for me. Uh, that's when I think I first started to spiral, um, because I'm very much a victim of that. I think a lot of us are. I think I am just like, if I can ever chart my podcast, I'd be so excited. If I can ever get advertisers, I'd be so excited. If I can get this guest, if I can publish a book, if I can... You know, all I want is to feel better about myself and have some sort of tangible metric, some sort of key performance indicator that tells me you're progressing, you're moving the needle, you're as good as other people. And while some of those small wins I try to celebrate and they make me feel really good, I also forget about them as they came so slowly and I forget about them so quickly. Um, to only be on to the next thing, because when your nature is just not being good enough, it's just hard to be proud of yourself. And I don't say that to solicit anybody's sympathy, but I say that because I think it's a relatable problem we all have to a degree. I think, you know, if we any of us were that self-satisfied, would we work as hard, you know? Um, I think there's a difference between ambition and hard work and goals and, you know, just blazing inadequacy. Uh, but I do think that at different points in life, you know, we, 
get through hard times by imagining the feeling of when we get to a particular milestone. And when we get to that milestone and it doesn't meet that expectation, it's super dark because that's all that was pulling you out of the, you know, uh, pit in the first place. And it's impossible for me to not sing uh, Mouse Rat Pit, which is a great song, actually, that I think could get radio play from Parks and Recreation. And anyways, I, I don't know if I'm recounting this in too much detail. I was I was trying to get my theory out of the way at the front and then, like, go through some specific scenes. Um, but I do think that this whole segment, um, it, it starts out with her, you know, desire for approval and insecurity kind of driving her and she gets more of it and more of it and more of it. She's slightly thrown off, you know, not slightly majorly thrown off by her first run in, um, with disapproval, which is the Kanye situation. And then for the next like six years, does everything in her power to earn back what she, she and only she perceives she lost in that moment. And this is why mental health matters. Like, it's so crazy to me how affected she was by that and how representative of the public's opinion she thought that was. And despite her insane accomplishments with Speak Now and, you know, after that, I mean, like, with that and Red and 1989, like, she still, like, needed that album of the year, that validation. And I think during this period, too, um, it's it was an era so indicative of a person's 20s where you start to kind of become a little bit more self-actualized, but you seek improvement in all the wrong places and more in more surface level things. And I think that reading her poems uh, from was it rep? Yeah, from the Reputation magazine, where she talked about filling the lunch empty lunch tables of her past. Um, and then in the Glamour interview where she said she just didn't get it, like she didn't get that by, um, you know, kind of counteracting the way she always felt growing up or whatever in terms of being left out and ostracized from girl groups um, that she wanted to be like empowering and wanted this era to be about her girlfriends. I'd argue she over highlighted the magic of female friendship because she was trying to escape the man-eater narrative that really dominated during red um but also i think she really sincerely just wanted to like be excited about having fun female friends she got out of country music she moved to new york she was like i don't know i think we all have that time in our 20s when we just like want to marry tyler Moore all over town and um it's it's kind of that I feel like she got very typecast into like that kind of uh, faux feminism, even though she didn't intend for it to be faux. I think that there's, you know, it's before we really understand the meaning of why equal rights are important, it's easy to kind of adopt convenient white feminism, if you will, with being like, yeah, women supporting other women. Like I throw a party with like an awesome photo booth and wear a tartan outfit and like Carly and Martha show up. They're supporting me. Feminism. You know, not the same thing, not saying she said that, but I think that like, you know, that's that sort of like, you know, for a person that hasn't been, you know, widely marginalized or experienced a lot of the the depths of why that fight is important. A lot of people, you know, don't even don't get there till they're a little bit older and have experienced more. I think that's kind of people's first foray into feminism is just kind of like girl power, right? 
Um, and, you know, honest, not that that's wrong, but I think what it, it inadvertently did was make people even there's nothing worse than feeling left out. Perhaps worse is feeling left out of a party you would literally never be invited to. I feel this way when Cassie David now hangs out with Taylor Swift. Two, two different, vastly different people that I respect tremendously and think are very funny in their own way that I would love to see interact and just really thoroughly enjoy being a part of. Now hearing her battle with like uh, body dysmorphia and whatnot, I do kind of wonder what it was like being around all of those models. Which brings me to the next part, which a lot of people thought was this innocuous scene that I actually think is incredibly deep. She's with her producer, Joe Little. And she has not yet talked about any of her issues with eating. Can I just say, too, that I loved her propensity to, like, just throw her hair up, wear sweats, be dressed casually, and not wear makeup? I mean, she's, like, such a beautiful woman, period. Um, But I do think that's an element of freedom with aging, too, for some. In in a Kylie Jenner, you know, Kardashian world of, of major glam all the time, uh, I am always refreshed when people, especially when they're working or doing something otherwise unglamorous, can just like live with themselves. Like something's awful to me about feeling like I, I like to put on makeup. And I think I mentioned like on a recent episode how comfort for me isn't looking sloppy. It's looking a little bit put together. Um, but I, I think sitting in glam for two hours a day every day of your life is like a colossal waste of time for an appearance-based motive. <laughs> And I think like famous people, they could glam all the time if they wanted to. And I respect when people don't care enough to. And I think that's another piece of this documentary where like she just, you know, is allowing herself to exist as she is. And um, I love it anyway. okay. so the scene, she orders a burrito and um, she's on the phone ordering a burrito. And I'm like, are you honestly caught like a I wonder who's making the burrito? I don't think it's Chipotle. I try to observe the fold. It doesn't look like a, a a true Chipotle two sides in uh, firmly then roll fold that really on it. You know, Chipotle isn't my favorite, but they do know how to firmly roll a burrito in a way that minimizes, uh, you know, overflow. But I think it was funny that she was ordering it. And I want I guess maybe Joel goes down and gets it. But like, do you feel like if Taylor Swift called you, you would recognize her voice? And also, what is her alias? I wonder this at hotels, too. This is one of my notes at the beginning. Does she pay market rate for the best suite at every hotel? That's got to be expensive. How does she know there's not, like, cameras and mics in there? Does she get scared, like, with the windows? Does she, like, get nervous with the cleaning staff, like, going through her shit? Like, how do you... I, I would trust nobody. I'd be so paranoid. And it was so fascinating watching her go from playing for thousands and thousands of people to just going by herself and texting in like a black armored suburban. Um, it is a funny thing where you meet all these people who like love you, but if they're not involved in your direct life after that interaction, it's over. And while they take so much with them because they've known you for so long, you don't know them. Um, and I worried about her in that moment in terms of how lonely she gets, especially in the hotel rooms when she's not, you know, her significant other, or her mom can always be there, et cetera. Um, I hope she has, I don't know, does she have like a personal assistant or some like crony that's always by her side? I Then I think about this too. <laughs> Sorry. How do, um, I'd want an, like a manager or assistant or a person that could like be with me and keep me company, but if they're not your family member and like they have their own family in life, like how do you justify spending that much time with somebody? You know, like how do people that go on tour, tour with her like justify that much time away from home? I think these jobs are so interesting in that way. 
um, and probably caused a lot of guilt as a result. And then I'd feel guilty if I felt like the person who had to travel with me was missing out on aspects of their life. Anyways, okay, so she orders a burrito. I wonder if her aliases were Meredith Grey, Olivia Benson, you know, maybe not Benjamin Button, but then, you know, those characters she loved became her pet. So who is she going by now? My best conjecture is another, like, show or movie or something she likes. My hope is that she goes by Princess Consuela Banana Hammock. Will we ever know? Probably not. But the reason this burrito scene is poignant to me um, the New York Times, or maybe it was Vulture, was like, things we learned from Taylor Swift's documentary. She has never had it. She didn't have a burrito until she was 27. Um, and taken at face value. Watching this scene, I was like, no, no, this isn't about the burrito. This isn't about being a picky eater. This is uh, foreshadowing leading into a conversation about her struggle with eating, her inability to indulge. And this burrito is not just food. It's representative of two years ago, her abandoning a series of unhealthy patterns and behaviors as it relates to what she ate and what she allowed herself to eat and what she allowed herself to enjoy. That's what I took from it. And not only was she eating it and enjoying it, she added a chip to it. It was just a cute scene of like an in like an in. I don't know, it was like an inside look at like a recording session and her just like genuinely enjoying her meal. And I really thought that, I don't know, I thought a lot of people were missing the point that would could have looked like, oh, I'm, I just like never, I'm sheltered or I'm picky or whatever. I just think that like uh, in, a, in a small way in this innocuous scene, her sitting there being able to indulge and enjoy a burrito without any sort of guilt or thought put into it is actually a, ma- a much bigger hurdle, a much bigger deal, and an accomplishment in and of itself that we might not even realize. I- I'm actually not even at that part of the documentary yet. I skipped over something that I thought was funny, which was her getting on her private plane. Um, and it was the first scene her mom was like really in, and that huge dog Kitty is on. There's somebody with a Notre Dame hat in the back. I think it might be Austin. I think that's the only time. Oh, you know what I just realized? It's a mirror. It's the back of her head, and she's sitting across from Austin. Oh, so okay. Sorry, I'm 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 being annoying. Um, I thought there was like several people behind her on the plane, but really it's a mirror, and she's sitting across from her brother, and she's with her mom, and um, they're eating what looks to be some sort of cut up steak, which looks delicious. And you know, I know I shouldn't. It's not a it's not a competition, but whenever I see people. All I, like, I just really want to be able to order takeout every night and not worry about the delivery fees or cost of it. I hate cooking. I hate having food in the house. I hate grocery shopping. I'm not inventive with recipes. I love eating and I love meals and I get so excited about them. And it is a drain of energy <laughs> to figure out what to eat every day. And I just am a person that Carrie Bradshaw style would live happily ever after having other people make my food. But I'm not like ever going to have a chef. I just, you know, want to support local business. And more so than like the private jet, I was idealizing what it would be like to be able to like order a steak to go and just be like, yep, dinner tonight costs $60 for one to go to eat it on my couch for one meal. That's like a whole grocery bill, you know, for several meals. It just uh, that is luxury to me. True luxury is never again spending my days on retail me not and not pulling the trigger on a, in a you know, shopping cart 
full of items that will only be there 10 to 15 minutes before they're ripped from it because ASOS only ever has like two sizes left of something and only one of each color and you get it and it never fits anyways. Why am I still shopping there? And uh, I don't know. I'm just always like, well, what if I can save $3? There might be a 10% coupon out there. I'm like, what am I doing? Anyways, the humongous dog's funny name, Kitty. Taylor, like Jim from The Office, will like look like away toward the camera or toward someone and you just can tell she doesn't really like the dog. Or it's almost like a bit that she's annoyed by it. But Andrea calls it her cancer dog, which it's so sweet that that's the dog that comforted her through that difficult time. And I'm sure Taylor loves the dog for that. It's funny that they travel with it. I don't even travel with Tugboat. He weighs like, you know, 18 pounds or something. Uh, you can see how much joy it brings her, though. To travel with that dog is so wild, like on her jet. Also, love that the jet had TS on the headrests. It was like a monogram jet. That's so badass. I just I love the the combo of her being like such a goober in some senses, but like also just being such a boss bitch. And I know those are two words that like maybe we're not using anymore in the context of like, you know, this feminist revival where we're all enduring together. But like she's a boss bitch. She just is. Um, and that's not to be confused with a boss, babe. Very different things. Uh, anyway, she drives a Toyota. Refreshing. She gets to whatever airplane hangar and I guess her Toyota is waiting there. I think it's. Isn't doesn't she drive a Land Cruiser? A lot of people are like, I bet it's a Prius, but I actually think it's a Land Cruiser. Um, I support this. I love this. I'm sure she has other cars, but I've always told Greg, I'm like, if I ever hit it big, I do not care about cars. I will drive a practical car. I want to support American manufacturers, but it'll probably be a Honda or Toyota because in my experience, those last the longest. And I feel like Range Rovers are just like a little too mid aught socialite for me. And, uh, you know. Whereas I'd get a lot of nostalgic pleasure out of ride, you know, driving around in a purple Geo Tracker with a teal racer stripe, you know, like part of the back windows, like soft top, like a Wrangler, but like much more low budge. I don't know. I just think she's a person that doesn't need like a Maybach to feel good about herself. She's not like posing in her driveway with her orange Lambos and biker shorts like Kylie Jenner, who you know, new money alert. Anyway, so she goes to her parents' house. <laughs> Literally, nobody wants me to be recapping this at this level of detail, but uh We'll breeze through. Um, her dad is waiting there at what I assume is her mom's house. I think this is interesting. Um, her parents have been divorced for a while, but they seem to have a good relationship and they seem to co-parent and they seem to be friends. And they're always sitting together at award shows. And for this, I am very, very happy. Uh, he greets her at the door. So I don't know. I, it's just an interesting dynamic. Um, they're all like cheersing around a table. I'm glad to see Andrea has so many friends. Their doormat at the front door says Swift. Bold choice. If I was in or around Nashville, Tennessee, perhaps Hendersonville, and I saw a doormat that said Swift, it would be hard for me to not Harriet the Spy on up there with my little notepad and peer in the window. JK, like she said, I connect with her lyrics. I, I don't I don't want to stalk her. That's strange behavior. I, I do get a little creeped out by like mega stands like, that are just so in, almost weirdly intensely defensive and in, in, into everything she's doing it's like she's just a person like i i like she's a great person and i adore her but i just i don't know i i think there is kind of a difference and i the stalking she's dealt with is unbelievable and um i don't know i don't even know if i'd say hi if i saw her in person i i think security would like tackle you right if i saw her i'd like probably choke and i'd be like you know, I just ask her simple questions. They'd be like, how's life? How's your family? <laughs> I 
And then I'd be like, sorry, those are lyrics to like back to December, but that's not what I meant. I, I, how is your mom? You know, it just wouldn't go well. So they're sitting around with their mom's gal pals. And uh, I'm not proud that I know this, but I can tell from a blurry uh, top of one wine bottle and in passing scene that they are drinking Rombauer Chardonnay. Despite Taylor being more of a Sauvignon Blanc and Sancerre fan, as far as I know, the Sauvignon Blanc bottle is different and it is most certainly a Rombauer Chardonnay and it tracks because I, they might be the official sponsor of, of Suburban Moms Everywhere. Uh, it's $40, so, you know, it's the type of wine I'd feel special if somebody opened for me, but I wouldn't feel like indebted. You know, it's the right price point and it is delicious and I hate Chardonnay. Uh, speaking of, there's a very charming scene, speaking of wine, rather, where Abigail comes over. I think it's coming up. I'll just go through it. In her Nashville home that I need to spend more time screenshotting that and looking at the decor. I've, we know there's like baseballs in a birdcage. Like we've known there's like a lot of weird stuff for a while and not weird. It's just eclectic and quirky and probably more indicative of like how she decorated it when she was younger because it was her first place. But I kind of love that as like a time capsule. But may, yeah, who knows? But uh, I thought it was really cute because she was like, oh, uh, Abigail was like, oh, you already have red open. Does it make me a bad house guest to have white? And it was just kind of a classic funny exchange that I feel like happens every time I go over to a girlfriend's house. And it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Like, what, what do you have? Like, whatever you have open. Yeah, 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 white's fine. Oh, my God. Yeah, Moscato, my favorite. Like, I freaking hate Moscato. But I'm never going to be like, um, I'm really looking for like a fruit, like a fruit forward medium body docg italian red if you don't mind thank you um no one's ever gonna say that but i guess i think why i liked it and thought it was cute is a because they're such old friends they treat each other as any other girlfriends would who don't want to inconvenience the other and who are just like polite and care about the other person but also as if she can't afford all the wine in the world to be like, oh, my God, whatever you have open, like, don't open a new bottle for me. Like, she's like five hundred million dollars. Um, and that is just it's charming. And they're down to earth and they're just best buddies. And I thought it was a really sweet moment. Anyway, um, I think why I I've shifted the conversation to being lighthearted is because this is where she's talking about her mom's cancer. If you listen to my uh, you can't hurry lover two episode album review of lover, you would have heard. Um, uh, my small breakdown because i said i will go i will listen to soon you'll get better once i will talk about it once let's get this over with together and then never again and uh, so obviously this this is a piece of the documentary too that made me feel incredibly sad so i'll talk about my save my thoughts about andrea and her her cancer i just listened to that podcast uh i'll spiral if i <laughs> do it again um oh the other thing that w about and when they were in Taylor's apartment, uh, if you want to know, and again, I don't love this skill. Um, when they panned to her fridge, she was uh, drinking a K-Mist cab. It's about eighty nine dollars, but I mean, depending on the vintage. But if you went to the store and bought it, it'd be about ninety dollars, uh, which, you know, that's that F you, you know, mid priced wine money. That is just I respect so much. K-Mist is delicious. And I wish like for me, fourteen ninety nine and up is like birthday wine. Um, what a joy to have birthday wine every day, you know? And, you know, perhaps the most humbling experience of all is that her knobs on her oven are black. I always tell Greg when I would go into a home and, you know, you know, I like to gauge people's socioeconomic statuses. I've been doing it since I was a kid based on snacks, trampolines, American Girl doll hospitals, you know, padded toilets and the like. And as an adult, especially since like all of our friends are just lapping us in life and have like kids in renovated homes. Um, I, I'm always on the lookout for those bloody knobs, those wolf appliances. I 
feel like they are the Louboutins of kitchen appliances. And while I feel like they are chic, they are slightly showy. And have I considered starting a knob company so people can get the red knob look without the red knob price tag? Absolutely. Uh, but I guess, uh, needless to say, I am charmed that Taylor Swift has just regular old black knobs. Okay, we have to move through. The next scene is um, her front yard and all the fans outside. It's so weird that she has to have security detail escorted out of her own home. I don't know if it's always like that. And then we have a very candid moment where she discusses her weight and how she was a double zero, which I don't even understand. She's taller than me. My bones would literally have to disintegrate for me to be a double zero. Um, she's now a size six and how long it took her to accept her body and that rail thin wasn't how her body was supposed to be and you don't always recognize disordered eating when it's happening uh but in retrospect you're like oh i wasn't supposed to want to pass out after a concert i was supposed to feel strong and you know it's okay to eat i mean like these are things that might sound so basic uh you know and you could write them off as like i don't know and we're that's just we're self-conscious about our bodies and like but no these things are important to recognize as um untruths we have to completely remove from our inner monologues and you know she showed a picture of her like from the day before and said it would send her into like a shame spiral and um I, like i said earlier i think the important thing too is her saying like the, the it's not like i am void of those feelings i just changed the channel now i have to actively exercise a, a muscle that says we're not doing this and um, that 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 is a habit in and of itself to not let yourself go there. That takes a long time to get to. And I I don't know. It was it was just like a, it was a really meaningful kind of almost passing conversation that didn't seem contrived where she was just like looking through photos and then she decided she wanted to talk about it. I don't even I think she was maybe surprised she even said it. I, I'm surprised because I, I truly just always thought she was like so naturally thin and I like I'm tall and blonde and I remember being at the 1989 concert and being like wow I wish I could look like that and but I don't like I shouldn't and I, she doesn't want anybody to feel that way because what it took to look like that was so incredibly unhealthy like she was sick and she talked about the importance of being looking strong and looking healthy and not looking sick and um how long it's taken her to come to terms with that and I it's just so important that you're you, you listen to your own body and what the, your normal weight is what you're supposed to look like. You don't need to look like other people. The best size is the one where you feel healthy and strong in your own body. And I don't know, I thought it was really, really, really important for her to echo her own journey with self-acceptance and how many young women will see that and hopefully be mindful of trying to do the same the best they can. Uh, again, hate that I'm like brushing through this, but next we have the Kanye thing. They go over it again. I'm, you know, we we get it. I've seen too much of this already. I understand why Lana Wilson needed it to like tell the story, but I also am just like tired of it being talked about. It shows a lot of like the fuck Taylor Swift at the Kanye concert and how Taylor Swift's over party was the number one thing trending on Twitter. It was vile. It was awful. It was a very public bullying campaign. And I think what was most alarming is, yeah, like the celebration of people wanting to take her down and being so ready for her to mess up. And what an anxious place to live. Right. And uh I think uh, there was a lot of articles they showed headlines of speaking horribly about her. Like Taylor Swift isn't like most celebrities. She's worse. Like I was on Vice and he, they apologized. Nikki Glaser apologized for her comment. I commend Nikki Glaser because I thought, I think comedians, it's easier to own your jokes and be like zero Fs. It takes, you know, it takes a lot to apologize and furthermore to acknowledge that sometimes the ease of a joke is disproportionate to how hard it hits. 
and that you didn't mean it. And it's important to tell that person, right? I've I've made I've said so much stuff about Taylor Swift that if it appeared in that documentary, I would die because she like means a lot to me. And I am such a fan. But at the same time, I'm like a person who like likes to go for the joke and like will speculate and will at times change my mind and whatever. Uh, but anyways, I thought that was interesting. And Taylor responded to Nikki and I'm happy for her. There's also a scene that's so sad that I can't quite place the timing of uh, where she's very upset and she's talking about how artists are intrinsically insecure. We like the sound of people clapping. You know, it makes us forget how we're not good enough. I went over this earlier and she's been doing it for 15 years and she's tired of it and she's crying and it's heartbreaking and I don't really want to relive it. Um, it's just this random scene in a rep sweatshirt that seems like it's a little bit earlier in the timeline. But then she goes into the speech about how when people fall out of love with you, they just don't love you anymore. And how she just wanted to disappear. Now she did for a year. And it reminds me of, I don't, all that I know is I, I don't know how to be someone you miss. Last Kiss, best song ever. Um, I talk more about like the song recording and reputation. And um, I'm going to like, I've as I'm talking through this, I'm cutting out huge chunks of it to kind of keep this uh, condensed for regular iTunes. Uh, while I argue for long form, I don't need to be exhaustive and my plan is to put up a hugely disorganized mashup of cut footage from this episode if people care uh some of it'll be things i said on like it'll be it'll be repetitive but it's because i decided to say it more quickly or differently and you'll hear some of that i don't know i don't use i don't usually like to do that but i don't know behind the scenes you know when i say something and i'm like shut up stop talking about how you know after you watched her 73 questions video how you made it you know your goal to be able to afford a Byredo treehouse candle. And it's 2020. It's been four years. Still not there. And it's okay. I think sometimes I'm just trying to like therapize myself through this podcast, but it's just not really conversations I need to be having. It's, so yeah, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash be there in five. Um, also, I don't, why was I going to say this? Don't forget, if you're like new here or you, you love Taylor Swift and you like this podcast, I'll be in Nashville February 15th post Galentine's day i it's you know it's at 405 get drunk at brunch and then like come hang out we're gonna talk about all things pop culture country music my sister will be there we're gonna have so much fun it's at 405 and uh yeah uh vip sold out but general admission there's still some available and i would love to see you guys anyways that was just housekeeping because i was already talking about patreon uh but yeah on i'll put the I'll, i talked more about joe then I and I cut it out of this just because I don't I just don't feel like it's the point of the documentary. Um, but I think a lot of people, that's the stuff they want to hear about. I just feel like I've moved on kind of from it in a way. But also I've talked so much about her relationship status. The bulk of this podcast existed before it was in the rep era and before we had any information. And I just like love to research and I loved leveraging other people's research and was love to like theorize on the podcast. But like people then want you to like die on a hill that you were I don't know. And if you kind of like move on and don't talk about it as much, people think you're like going back on it. Now, I never changed my opinion. It's just like not happening anymore. Or we and I, we never know if it will. And I just like, let's move on. I don't know. And I, since Lover came out, it's, uh, she said it's about Joe and we see them out and about and they're happy and that's great. And I don't care. I, I want her to be happy. But I, what pisses me off is when people are like, I feel like people harp on the fact that uh like it's it's it, it it's not binary like it, it's not mutually exclusive rather like it's not this happened in 2014 or she's been dating joe for three years 
both can exist and it's fine or and one can not exist and i can be wrong and it's fine like it's music it's up for analysis whatever it means to it means to you and i think that's the way she wants it and it's whatever but i talk more about that i'll put that more in the incohesive patreon mashup not like i have any tea or anything specific to say but i think i just elaborate a little bit more but he was not really even present in the documentary and i think that was by design and i kind of want to respect to a degree because i think they needed to acknowledge him but i don't think lana wilson wanted him to overtake the narrative which so often the romantic life of women does and so often i let even my podcast like that's what i'll focus on and i'm trying to be better about that too i've just been really impressed with what she's done since she's been back on the map and feel differently than i did when she wasn't doing interviews the, I also thought it was interesting that the New York Times, what they, they called him a ghost in some context. Let me see if I have the quote here. They said, um, otherwise it's lonely up there. Even the man she says she's seeing is a figment in this movie. Crap from images, a hand holding blur, a ghost. You know, you got to wonder. Would they say that if this documentary was about a dude? Would it be as glaring if their girlfriend was missing and it was just about the music? I don't know. Uh, this is, these are the things I'm trying to check myself with. Because then we get into the political piece. And she's talking about how she really cares about her home state. And uh, Marsha Blackburn is running for uh, Senate. And she is basically Trump in a wig. She voted against the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which tries to protect women from stalking, date rape, domestic violence. She, you know, voted against, I mean, you know, basic civil rights, gay marriage, like just very, very far right uh very not in alignment with taylor as it relates to at least what we know about her social uh her stance on social issues she's fearful that tennessee is going to appear to stand for those things and um it just seems to me like she's at a point with she's at a point where she can't say any can't not say anything you know and they show her a clip of her saying like nobody wants to hear my political views they just want me to sing and like, that's kind of the joke of the documentary about the Dixie Chicks is called Shut Up and Sing. Um, and perhaps the most alarming thing to be reminded of is how in passing Natalie Maines said, like, you can barely it's barely audible in the microphone that were their embarrassed George Bushes from Texas. And the backlash as a result of that and uh, now understanding that that being a precedent in country music, I mean, what Natalie Maines said I think it was at a concert in the UK is that we don't want this war, this violence, and we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. I mean, in 2020, that is perhaps like the most polite way a celebrity could ever articulate their political disdain toward the president. Like, it's just so wild how inoffensive the statement is and how disproportionate and horrible the backlash was. Uh, it, it was a hateful witch hunt not only by you know mostly conservative americans but by the media and in the taylor swift documentary they show scenes like bill o'reilly you know calling them callow foolish women who deserve to be slapped around like are you kidding are you kidding they exercise freedom of speech i mean it's despicable. It's it's an absolute cesspool of society who simply did not want, like, they didn't want a woman to step out of her place and have an opinion. People protesting their concerts, like, burning and stepping on CDs, like, because she said, we don't want this war. 
this violence and we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. Like just when you think about it in the context of today, it's like, oh, my God, that wouldn't that wouldn't even get retweeted. Let's just be a career ending uh, like d- derecho of misogynistic a- anger that was kind of written off in the name of of patriotism because she stepped out of line and you're uncomfortable with a woman having an opinion for the love of God. Anyway, uh, so we review that, and then we move into the sexual assault trial, and uh, it's tough. I'm going to play for you what she says about it, because I think the way she describes it is like, yeah. Uh, So basically a radio DJ, she accused of grabbing her butt several years ago. I think it was like the Red Era. Um, and she, they told his management he got fired. And after he grabbed her ass and got fired for it, because, you know, consequence, he sued her for millions of dollars. Again, he groped her. She got him fired because that's sexual assault. That's sexual harassment. That's the entitlement of a, a man feels to a woman's body in public. What the hell is that man going to do in private? He, instead of accepting the consequence that was pretty mild, all things considered, sues her for millions of dollars. Again, for grabbing her ass. I cannot. She countersues for a symbolic $1. Good for her. So she then has to go to Denver and be a part of a sexual assault trial. And this is what she had to say about it. You walk into a courtroom and then there's this person sitting in a swivel chair, staring at you like you did something to him. The first thing they say to you in court is, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you react quicker? Why didn't you stand further away from him? Then he has a lawyer get up and just lie. There were seven people who saw him do this, and we had a photo of it happening. I was so angry. I was angry that I had to be there. I was angry that this happens to women. I was angry that people are paid to antagonize victims. I was angry that all the details had been twisted. You don't feel a sense of any victory when you win because the process is so dehumanizing. This is with seven witnesses and a photo. What happens when you get raped and it's your word against his? This is what I was talking about earlier with like, you know, she has all the resources in the world. She had, what'd she say, six or seven witnesses and was still being antagonized, still being given a hard time, still being asked why she didn't scream. Why she didn't seem mad, what she was wearing. You know what I mean? Like, it's so, it, it, that, it hits you like a ton of bricks. And when she puts it in that context of like, this process changed me, like, it was so dehumanizing. And I had everything working in my favor. What happens if you have no one who saw it and, It's your word against his. And you're sitting in a courtroom across from a man who raped you, looking smug. And people doing everything in their power to say you're lying. 
as if that's something you would want to lie about, as if that's something that brings you joy, as if it's not something that's so shocking and traumatizing and hard to process in real time. You don't even always know how to react. Like, I, I, I don't know. It's just like the entitlement. I don't think people I don't think people realize how some not all some men's hands feel so entitled to women's bodies. And this is still alive and well a year and a half ago. A bouncer, a man trying to keep the bar safe, like literally was probably over six, five over with 250 at least just straight up grabs my crotch in the middle of a bar, a bouncer. Who do I tell? Who gives a shit? Who's going to believe me, a random patron that they're probably like, oh, she's drunk. And the worst part is I was wearing this jumpsuit that was like disproportionately cleavagey. I never, ever show cleavage. I'm like, we talked about this in true love weights. Um, I just feel like I grew up, you know, through the church and youth groups and otherwise being made to feel very uncomfortable with my body and having curves. And that it was my responsibility to make sure people didn't look at them, not theirs to be respectful. And literally the second it happened i was so mad at myself for wearing that jumpsuit and i was like i knew better like this 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 said something about me they must have thought like i was into this it's like crazy to look back on because it's not it's not a revealing outfit in the slightest and it shouldn't matter but like i think that was an enlightening moment to me about some of my like deep-seated issues with like you know, the fact that I would blame myself in that moment. Um, and I also think like, I, like, again, this, like this guy, he was huge. Like I could have never, ever taken him on. I, I didn't know who to talk to. I just like left the bar. I had to leave the bar. I had, I felt gross and like I did something wrong. And all the while I'm remembering, you know, less than a year prior, the commentary by our president and I'm like, holy shit, I, my genitals were just grabbed without my consent. Like, this is like this is this type of person, like in the flesh. It I, I just the the there's still being things in existence that strengthen the privileged males feel to define women as property. Like they're their privilege of being a man is that women are free agents and they can be touched or approached however the male pleases is so it's so scary and frustrating and this isn't the first time that's happened to me but that's the most recent time that i was like you like like it's it sounds stupid to sound say this casually, but like I'm used to a boob grace, like I'm used to an inappropriate touching, a cat call, an ass smack. Like these things happen in bars. Like I, I it's like so disgusting that I just said that, but like I, yeah, like I, I hate that that even is a thing. But these are things that like I've normalized, and I wouldn't like cause a scene or leave the bar. Oh my god, I just said cause a scene. I'm doing the thing that she was doing. This is what I mean. This is the this is the 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 paradox of trying to identify and deprogram our own misogyny while also speaking in the manner that is the very thing we're trying to avoid um anyway i just like that's just a small example of 
I didn't, I didn't even ever make eye contact with him. Like he didn't even look at me like a person, like just grabbed, like kind of like, like cupped and like grabbed. Like, I'm not saying like touched, like grabbed. And as we were walking past each other and then walked away and I turned around and his head was already turned away. And I'm like, I'm probably the 15th person he's done that to tonight. And like, I'm so outspoken about this stuff, but like, I don't know why, like, I didn't take it up with management. Like I didn't like so awful. I was like more, I just like wanted to, I felt terrible and like violated. And I just wanted to lay in bed with like a Gatorade and like be done with the night. And like, it's just weird. I normally would have done something. I think, I don't know when you're in that situation. This is what I mean. I didn't handle it perfectly at all. And I'm like, I'll like, get on my soapboxes but like when it you're in the moment you don't feel like yourself because you weren't treated like a person you were treated like an object anyway not about me uh okay so now we get into the political part she gets into a discussion with three older men about speaking out politically she says you know she it's not like she wants to insert herself to make things more complicated but like she can't not at this point and it pans to, I don't know, they're in some like dressing room and it's her man. I think it's the, I think it's the guy that heads up 13 management. And he says, for 12 years, we've not gotten into politics. Um, and then Scott Swift is like, did Bob Hope get into politics? Did Bing Crosby? And Andrew Swift is like, I love her so much in this moment. I'm just going to play it. I mean, does Bob Hope do it? Well, Bing Crosby well- do it? I'm saying right now that this is something that I know is right. And you guys, I need to be on the right side of history. Taylor, and if he Taylor, doesn't win, then at least I, I, at least I tried. Taylor, here's the, here's the problem. I just want to read you what I wrote and I'm going to try to start. I just really want you to know that this is important to me. I this totally is something agree that, have with you, have the you just, issue. Have you heard, heard, you. heard? Have Let, you just heard? Yes, I've read the entire thing. And the bottom line right now, I'm terrified. I'm the guy that went out and bought armored cars. I worry for her safety as much as anybody does. Maybe more. It really is a big deal. She votes against against fair pay for women. She votes against the reauthorization of the of the Violence Against Women Act, which is just basically protecting us from domestic abuse and stalking. Stalking. She votes. She thinks that that if you're a gay couple or even if you look like a gay couple, you should be allowed to be kicked out of a restaurant. It's really basic human rights and it's right and wrong at this point and i can't see another commercial and see her disguising these policies behind the words tennessee christian values those aren't tennessee christian values sorry about my phone going off i i get upset again like and i hope i don't get in trouble for using that audio but it's just so much more powerful coming from her voice than me paraphrasing she's try she tries to say it like 12 times and she's just being talked over over and over and over again and her mom's like even trying to talk over the people talking over her, and her mom's still being kind of polite and like the the part where she starts to cry and she's like it's protecting women against stalking and then she points to herself and she's like stalking taylor swift is is she's sent death threats she's stalked people break into her house and sleep in her bed they scale 
for their walls and use her shower. She like she she is so at risk. And like, I don't know, it just like really hit me. And like this, I don't know. I just thought this was a really interesting scene. I thought it was a really important scene. I think, you know, it's her standing up to her dad is an interesting dynamic in and of itself. I understand his concerns for safety. I'd imagine it's partially politically driven for him. Um, it's just these guys do not get it and like aren't hearing her. And I'm proud of her in this moment. And like it was it's hard to watch, but it's so relatable. And it's so weird to see somebody you see is so like powerful and assertive. Uh, and she's the one who makes all these people money. Yet She's the one that's being bulldozed in this situation. And um I don't know. Like, I just get it. Like, it's, it's, it, I, she can't change that she wasn't involved two years ago. And obviously she regrets that. As she said, she wasn't going to stick her head out of the sand for anything. She was going through her own personal trauma and trying to deal with the right way to do things. And when you do have this much reach, there is an element of strategy and thought that goes into it. But I think that, you know, what happens to anybody is you're able to see something so objectively and you're able to you know really see both sides and weigh the issues and try to be you know not too for lack of a better word headstrong one way or the other uh because it's all theoretical right and then something happens to you and you you physically cannot see any other reason or way people could be on the wrong side of it because it is so crystal clear and I totally understand and relate to having so many aspects of my belief system in my 20s vastly changing once I experienced, a, you know, a variety of different things. But like even one of them being like, I anytime I'm in a conversation and people are so pro guns in any format, like I just sit there and I'm like, I like remember that time I was 19 years old. And a stone's throw away from me. Some student took the lives of 32 people with the two guns he had bought from a dealer across the street, despite having been declared by a court to be a danger to himself and others in 2005 that sent him to psychiatric treatment. In spring 2007, he bought two guns and killed 32 of my classmates. And it could have been me. It could have just as easily been me. I had a class in that in the same room a semester prior. And the only reason I get upset when I say this is because I see what she I see how hurt she is. I see how strongly she feels A, and I see how hurt she is B. Because I feel like when I understand like issues are complicated and there's so many sides you can look at, and I understand everything as nuance and statistically one person's experience is not representative of the complexity of an entire issue. Absolutely not. But as like human beings, I understand what it's like to like sit across from people who I know and who can look me in the eye and not choose to like see my experience. It's like a very valid reason for feeling the way I do. And uh, it hurts my feelings that like that could have just as easily been me and yet they still would support that process that underwent for that person to be able to buy the guns he did and like i just i don't know like this scene like crushed me like this is probably when i went over the edge because i just i know what it i think we all know what it's like to feel unheard to feel talked over 
to feel scared that you're going to disappoint people you respect, to feel like you are trying to open up and share something that is certainly not easy for you and certainly not a narrative you want for yourself, but you're talking about it anyway and still feeling like it's being completely dismissed. And I just, I don't know. I'm proud of her. I understand it on so many levels. And this was a very important scene, I think, for anybody to watch because I think you can put yourself in her position because she's not taylor swift pop superstar she's taylor swift daughter and uh taylor swift subordinate to the management of her broader enterprise strangely and uh you know i think that it's just a relatable position a lot of us have been through and uh i'm gonna take a breather one sec made some coffee um you know i think like it's interesting i i genuinely believe in democracy i believe in your right to believe what you want to believe i also believe in your right to express an opinion um and not be you know taken down or canceled so long as it's not hurting anybody i really am a pretty neutral person not politically but like meaning i can i can really understand even if i don't respect it necessarily i can see why people come from the place they do and what motivates them and why they are the way they are. And it, and I, I really think more often than not, people really think they're doing the right thing. Um, and when these conversations get so heated, they're not successful because they're things much deeper than policies. They represent tenets of what, where you come from and your values so often. Um, and just like, I don't, want anybody to bulldoze mine i try not to do that to other people and i don't talk about politics a lot and it's not not that i really like it's not because i feel like i need to be muzzled it's because i don't think i it's my area of expertise and i don't think i can add any value to the point where i should put myself on a mic and be like a voice i'd much rather talk about specific issues i'd much rather talk about things i have firsthand experience in and i'd much rather encourage people to have healthy discourse with people around them because i think the problem really lies in us not talking because we can't have a civil conversation and then what happens is silent majorities take over without you even noticing because if you're only talking to people that agree with you you're never hearing the other side and i don't want this podcast to be a place of people only come who agree with me um I want to be able to connect on something besides politics. And I want to be able to connect on pop culture and these topics and nostalgia and mall culture and Abercrombie shirts and sororities. And like, I think we all have so much in common that when it's kind of all stripped away and we just talk about politics, we think we like hate each other. But I think that there's so much opportunity to relate to one another and to talk more. And I don't want this podcast to be a place where you feel crucified for not agreeing with me and i don't want you to come at me that way either um and it's just it's interesting because i can never quite figure out the way that i want to use my platform i just yeah it's like i i wrestle with this i'm like i don't want to i feel socially irresponsible sometimes not talking about it but then i don't want an uninformed voter coming here and voting because i said something my god no i want people doing research i want people consulting multiple sources i can nudge you but i don't want to make up your mind I don't know, guys. I try to just like stick to issue specific things and I don't want to ever make anybody feel like they don't belong. And I just believe in the art of true debate and I believe in, you know, civil discourse. And um, I think a lot of people that 
say that or like or it's kind of like saying you're moderate like well then you're conservative like no obviously you know i lean pretty far left but like i just i'm not it's not my style to push it down your throat and it's not the core topic of this podcast and i'll talk about it where appropriate but i just don't i really just don't want people to feel unwelcome i don't view people as that one-dimensional in terms of if their politics don't align with mine then we they have no business being here. I just don't think anything's that straightforward. And I think that that's uh, perhaps the worst way to get your point across and to achieve your ultimate goal of changing hearts and minds. That's just completely ostracizing people who you want to be welcoming in to your field of thought. I don't know. I know we operate in extremes and don't get mad at me for not condemning people uh because a lot of behaviors involved with some policies politics are condemnable behaviors i just don't want to make blanket statements and project onto thousands of people i just can't know where you stand and um yeah anyway point being of even i i don't even know if i should have told my own story but um uh i think that the thing we so often forget to lead with when we're having these conversations especially in the event somebody is articulating a personal experience, well, you, your instinct doesn't need to be to make your point and to be steadfast and to completely stonewall the person who's trying to get through to you. I, I, I think sometimes you need to remember to lead with empathy and be a human and empathy first, politics second. And uh, I just in that scene and sometimes I feel this way, I just feel like people are so much more concerned with being right or getting their point across than having like a, a moment of connection with a person that acknowledges that they're, you know, their anecdote. Like the point isn't always that they think it should be projected on the entire issue. Uh, you know, it's anecdotal evidence can't be. You, you have to acknowledge on your end, too, that there's very good reason people feel the way they do on both sides. And if somebody's choosing to share with you, you listening and absorbing the information doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you any less of a Republican or Democrat, it, but it makes you a human being. And I think it's worth factoring in anyone's personal experience into the way we view things, because if we can't experience those things... You know, I, it, that type of primary firsthand research is kind of invaluable. Uh, I think it's easy to say, like, oh, I have my own struggles. I understand everything. But like, no, we don't. And when you're looking at something so objectively, it's hard to really grasp it. And like I said earlier, the second we experience things, your entire worldview shifts. Um, so anyways, I could keep going. But uh, <laughs> the next scene, Taylor's about to post to Instagram her first political statement. And it just made... It was it was a sweet and like powerful scene. And it was there just like I just loved it. Like and I love tree in it. Like I, I thought she would be more like bullish and emotionless. Uh, I, I think she's incredibly intimidating. But as somebody in the Facebook group pointed out, what did that was so funny. She has major um, like suburban mom golf shorts energy. And uh, they're just like drinking white wine and like changing the world. <laughs> I just like. I love this scene so much. Not only is Tree sweet and supportive, she's also tearing up as Taylor talks. Um, they seem just close, and I just love it. And then Taylor's mom is comforting her. And I just relate 
so much to posting something or sending an email or doing something. I've been doing this since the 90s when I'd send an instant message that maybe was to my crush that was a little bit, you know, more controversial. And being by controversial, I was like, you know, asking my crush if they wanted to go get soft surf. Um, when I posted my Mormon mommy bloggers uh, blog, I like hit enter and I and I ran. I like ran away from my computer. I was like, this isn't going to go well. Like, why am I talking about religion? This is such a bad idea. And I did the exact same like couch wiggle she does. And I think one of the reviews I read said like it was a little bit dramatic and cartoonish. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure all of us have like sent a ballsy text, sent a ballsy email, done something. And it's a little out of character, but we know it's right. And we energetically like have to physically shake it out of us after it happens. And like you almost avoid your phone or whatever it is for a period of time to like build up suspense or something because you uh you're like not ready for the response and i just thought thought this scene was really sweet and um her mom is like comforting her and god i love andrea swift like i just could not love her more i love their relationship it's just seems like close but not without any sort of like respect or authority like i think sometimes bff moms and daughters it can be a little bit more like of a dramatic catty relationship that's complicated but she seems so maternal and motherly yet they don't have like the bit i don't know it's just a very sweet relationship um again the shorts i just love the shorts tree pain who knew it's like some people say never meet your heroes i i say maybe never see powerful people in shorts it really made me it it took all it was so disarming it took all my walls down i'm no longer afraid i feel like we could just you know have some sea breezes on the patio of a mid-range suburban country club while we overlook the back nine you know she just uh, she just seems like a real delight and uh i just feel like I, I love how intertwined and close she is with everyone and then they go into like another green room and talk about trump's response everybody feels a lot lighter uh there's been fifty-one thousand new registrations like immediately after in the past 24 hours and um I don't know. It's just a sweet moment. And I'm proud of her. I just, I mean, regardless of Marsha Blackburn or Phil Bredzen, uh, getting that many people to sign up to vote, like that is why this is important. Like people just like, the, like that is so important. And like, that's an amazing way to move the needle, regardless if you agree with her or not. And I just think it's incredible. And I think it ultimately led to 169,000 people registering to vote. You know, forget me, forget uh, Jojo Fletcher, forget <laughs> trying to think of like random ass people that are influencers. You sure Raven Nicole Gates might make me want to shop Grace Wade. But true persuasion and true influence is getting 169,000 people to register to vote and over a half million to sign the Equality Act. And it's incredible. We then move to the AMA. She's wearing that, I think it's Gucci disco ball dress. That was so beautiful. She looks, she looks so, her glam, everything was like so stunning that night. And it just made me laugh because she can't accept a compliment. <laughs> She's like, I look like a melt. Everyone's like, oh my God, you're so beautiful. You're so stunning. Oh my God, you're perfect. And she's like, I look like a melted down disco ball. I am a Pop-Tart rapper. And I just relate so hard to deflecting um compliments like yeah we should absorb them but for some of us it's not easy uh and i just appreciated the highly specific reference so much it was just like that's those are the small reasons why i love her and um 
a couple, I said that was one of my favorite parts uh, on Instagram. And a couple people DM me, they're like, that's not what she means. She means like, she's a pop artist and like, you know, they might, they might mistake her for a rapper. And I'm like, no, what? Have you ever had a pop tart? Like more signature than the f- very dangerous foil that Arby's roast beef sandwiches are wrapped in. And that one too many of us have, you know, really played fast and loose putting in the microwave. More famous than that foil is the is the Pop Tart foil, followed by, and maybe argue the Capri Sun foil, followed by when Alex Mack gets embarrassed following her exposure to toxic materials at the chemical plant when she melts into some sort of silver foil and slides through air ducts. Uh, the, you know, in case you were wondering, those are the official top four rankings of most notable types of foil in popular culture. <laughs> talking about okay so she then starts to work on me i talked about this earlier but then i put it as cut footage i'll put it as a uh, that'll be in the patreon um but i did like when she was stream of consciousness just being like we fight in an apartment i go outside there's like a parade and it's everything that makes you you emo kids la la land (laughs) whatever she said then she's like and then everything that makes me, me, and the things she included were cats, gay pride, people in country western boots, and her riding a unicorn, <laughs> which are interesting self-descriptors, if I'm honest. And, you know, I'm sure Tumblr's going wild over that uh, gay pride comment. And uh, after that, she starts talking about her career a little more existentially. So then she talks about how it's a lot to process because we do exist in this society uh, where Women in entertainment are discarded in an elephant graveyard. Thank God for JLo and Shakira for proving us wrong. Because she's saying it's by the time they're 35. I'd argue, you know, you don't need to look like that at 50. But I love that women, you know, in their 40s and 50s are still headlining the Super Bowl. And still, you know, we're not favoring the person who's brand new or who's, you know, Billie Eilish's age. JLo's been around for like 20 plus years. She's 50. And like, I don't know if what it would be like if she didn't look like that. I don't, maybe age doesn't matter if you literally defy all time and space and gravity. Uh, but, you know, I still think it's great and important that we're not discarding people into an elephant graveyard. I'm wondering if she had recently watched The Lion King. Isn't that a very specific reference? Um, but yeah, also, if, if Adam Levine and like Dave Grohl and whoever the hell can take off their shirt at the Super Bowl, J-Lo can shake her ass. Also, stripping is taking your clothes off. Stripping isn't pole dancing. I think those things are kind of confused. Like she was just in Hustler. She like worked her butt off to be able to have that kind of core and upper body strength. And I feel like it was pretty well known that that's, I don't know, something she recently did. And it wasn't supposed to be like over-sexualized. She wasn't trying to turn into a strip club. Her clothes were on. I don't know, guys. It's just like, everybody take a chill pill. Um, so she says everyone's like a shiny new toy for two years and uh, I think what she says is really poignant, poignant, be new to us, be young to us, uh, that you, but only in a new way and only in the way we want and reinvent yourself, but only in a way that we find to be equally comforting, but also challenging for you. Um, you have to live out a narrative that we find to be interesting enough to entertain us, but not so crazy that it makes us uncomfortable. This is probably one of my last opportunities as an artist to grasp onto that kind of success. I don't know, like, as I'm reaching 30, I'm like, I want to work really hard while society is still tolerating me being successful. That was hard to listen to, guys. Um, Like I talked about earlier, I think that this, a big uh, through line of this movie is kind of how 
the things that she is actively speaking out against also dictate her thought process in ways she doesn't even realize, even though she's coming into her own self-awareness. And like, it's just so not true. We will tolerate her being successful until the end of time. We will follow into her into the dark. Um, there is absolutely no ceiling I see her reaching where her diehard fans are going to grow tired of her. I think in another paradox here is her saying it's I it's happiness without anybody else's input. And I'm trying to sever from the need for approval. And when she's talking about society tolerating her being successful, she's not talking about us. She's talking about that broader media noise that has tormented her for so long. And I think she has trouble separating because the people that don't like her are louder. And I know she values her fans, um, but it's. You know, it's impossible to not want to at least try to win over and to be in good favor with the mainstream. But I don't feel like I think there, I feel like there's several examples of people who have, have soared throughout their 30s and 40s. And I don't know why she feels that way. And uh, I, I just don't see her becoming irrelevant or people not tolerating her success. I fear that because she stays out of so much because she doesn't want to read any negativity that like, is she not aware of how much positivity there is? I think that there are fleeting pop stars that people know for their music. And when the music stops, the interest is gone. And then I think there are icons and people who do more than just make music and make art. They change, you know, full industries. They challenge standards. They put an effort and level of care into their fans that most don't. They're consistent. They're hardworking. And their persona is generous with information to the degree that they can be to reach the most people possible and like, a, in a, an, you know, as a human being and not just as a performer. And I think she is a great performer, but I think more importantly, she's a great person. And I think that we've all always been able to see that. And while we've, you know, had our moments of what's going on, what are you doing? Selfishly, we want music. Selfishly, we want this to be a single. I haven't always agreed with everything she's said and done. And I don't think she's agreed with everything she's said and done. We've all made a ton of mistakes. Hers just happened to be publicly. And I think she's now at a point where she doesn't need to have had everybody agree with everything she's ever done because she's okay with it. Um, the end is like the best. I mean, I just love this part so much um, when she says, I'm trying to be as educated as possible on how to respect people and how to deprogram the misogyny in my own brain, toss it out, reject it and resist it. There's no such thing as a slut. There's no such thing as a bitch. There's no such thing as someone who's bossy. There's just a boss. And then the piece de resistance, the thing that I just wanted to laugh. I wanted to be like, I understand. I wanted to, I, I cried. The, the, I had several tailspins throughout this, but this is what like probably kept me up staring at the ceiling. And I literally pulled an all-nighter um, because it was so relevant. Uh, after she says that, she apologizes for it being such a soapbox. And then she's like, why did I say sorry right after? And the interviewer says, because we're taught to say I'm sorry or taught to apologize. And then I love this so much. She, she says, yeah, we're like, sorry, I was loud in my own house that I bought with the songs that I wrote about my own life. <laughs> and then the archer starts to play. 
And that was just the perfect way to end it. Um, like I said earlier, I just think it was purposefully a bit inconclusive. It was purposefully a little bit nervous. I don't think it's a tale of a self-actualized, enlightened woman telling the world her story now that she's sorted through all of her problems and all of her beliefs. I think it's the story of a person who, despite it being incredibly complicated and imperfect and something that will take years to do, she wants to share herself as a work in progress and not as an enlightened person. I think all we can do is try to let ourselves evolve, try to be mindful of when other people aren't letting us evolve, separate ourselves from our world and who we've always been. And when we feel like our instincts aren't matching with our belief systems, ask why, ask questions, try to sort it out, have deeper conversations with yourself and with others and who you are and what you care about. And like, what does, what would your world look like without any, anybody else's input or rather the fear of anybody else's input? How do you balance being sensitive to other people while also living your truth? I'm not a believer in, you know how I feel about zero F's people and like people are like, sorry, I'm just blunt. And they use it as like, as if that's some sort of charming personality trait, uh, that allows a person to say something with zero sensitivity, empathy, or tact. Uh, I don't believe that either. I think that there's a balance that needs to be achieved. And I don't mean to be preachy. I just, these, this is, I'm kind of echoing what I've taken away from it, what I've experienced in life. And uh, I struggle with this balance because I think I tend to skew more that I don't want to make people uncomfortable. Like I'm more polite than I am honest. And that's something I've been trying to correct for that I really was conditioned to be my entire life and is why I really relate to a lot of what she's saying. But moreover, like the reason that end scene like killed me. Uh, so on Wednesday, my podcast about TikTok came out. I hadn't listened to the full thing. On Thursday, I listened back to it and end up taking out a story I told. Because I was worried I sounded bad or I sounded angry or that it wasn't a big enough deal. And on some platforms, the original audio file might be there. If you listened on Wednesday, you would have heard this story. But I took it out Thursday. So, yeah, I don't mean to repeat myself. Um, if your phone automatically downloaded it, I think it would change. I don't know. So, for some reason, some people can still hear it. And for some reason, some people can't. But the bottom line is I was... I don't know if I was embarrassed. I just, I don't, I just like cried because I was like, I feel this all the time so hard. I want to take a hard and fast approach. I want to have an opinion, a perspective. I, I want to just say something and leave it. But like Taylor Swift, I'm not an enigma. I'm an explainer. And I want to be liked so badly and this podcast has just opened up a whole host of insecurities for me because people are so harsh uh about anything you say and like i just i don't know i got scared and then i was upset that i had a point i wanted to make that i let my desire to be liked and my fear of sounding like an angry man-hating woman you know like to get the best of me to the point where i changed the audio file like i never do that so just kind of interesting timing. Um, the, the, the bottom line was over the weekend, one night I was out to dinner. This 60-year-old man comes up to me and my friend who were eating dinner, like privately eating dinner, and interrupts our conversation, kind of like is being flirty and weird. 
uh, starts to talk to us, asks what we do. My podcast comes up. He proceeds to insult my podcast, ask what it's about. He just clearly doesn't really understand what podcasts are for, what they do. Um, and then when I, he asks what it's about, I tell him pop culture and he's like, "Ugh, I'm not listening to that. Like, you're not making me want to listen to that. Like, kind of like sell me harder. Like, I, he needs my he, he like it was talking to me in a way that like I got to I got to work harder to get his approval and to get his download. And I was like, kind of uncharacteristically snapped. I've had several conversations with like older men, weirdly, in different contexts very recently people that don't understand or listen to podcasts that are just so quick to belittle it. And um, just because they don't understand something, they completely write it off as some youthful, needless hobby where I speak into the abyss about like celeb gossip. And as I've talked about a lot on this podcast, just because I'm a woman who likes pop culture, I will not have my intelligence undermined. I will not have my interests belittled and I will not have my career dismissed as something that's a cute little hobby and it's just something i'm not taking anymore and i just kind of snapped at him and he gets pissed and as he's leaving he like you know says very loud to me from the door that he's walking out god you're so insecure and just like storms out and it was just like a textbook example of a man who feels entitled to come up and talk to us to interrupt our time and whose ego gets bruised and we don't want to talk to him. So then he proceeds to insult me. And then when I defend myself to an insult he started, he then tries to turn it back on me and make it about my insecurity and not his assholery. You know what I mean? And I was furious. And uh, I spoke about it fairly strongly at the end of the TikTok podcast. I was like embarrassed that I shared that because I just thought you guys would think, I don't know. I I was worried my message was lost in me sounding like I was just trying to like sound cool. And I was like whining and like, I just, you know, didn't want people making fun of my podcast for like selfish reasons, even though like podcasts, you know, like a lot of people have podcasts and they can be kind of silly. Um, It was so interesting because so I pulled the, that segment on Thursday And then I watched this Thursday night, well, Friday morning, like, you know, the same day, really, at 2 a.m. And she ends with that. And I'm just like, it it hit me so hard because I was like, point was that I want, I think women are so often um, we're raised to think that the comfort of others around us is more important than our needs and our truth and our, that we need to prioritize uh, being pleasant over being honest and that especially being in a public place, I could have just let it go. And I normally probably would have. I've had so many occasions where I've engaged and it's not the right time. But at that moment, I was like, what's more important? The, the, the people dining around me, not hearing me calmly defend myself or for him to think twice about the next series of women that he tries to belittle because men like him don't absorb feedback would never see feedback as being well-intentioned would never think they did something wrong they will gaslight you into making you think you're crazy they will make you question your sanity they'll make you question your story they will make you question what you said and a part of him did i just am mad at myself that like i even fell victim to thinking that i was wrong for telling that story even now i'm like shit i already told this story and people are going to be like oh you're repeating yourself and like i it's the problem with this is like you have your objective, but then you hear the noise 
And then you respond to that and not what you really want. And that's the whole point of this entire episode I'm recording is that I'm trying to fight it. I'm not perfect at it. I want us all to fight it, but also to go to go easy on ourselves and realize it's a complicated process of years and years of deprioritizing our feelings. The other thing I think is worth bringing up in terms of how often I get emailed this, DM this, how often I have these conversations in person, whether you don't understand a podcast or whether you shame women's interests or whether, you know, you just don't like the sound of my voice or the sound of a woman's voice. Um, and I, I'm saying this on like this happens to like every podcaster uh, and not that we're some marginalized group you need to worry about. But I just think that there's an interesting element of like sexism as it relates to talking about somebody's voice and making fun of the stuff they choose to talk about. Podcasts thrive in niche. Podcasts thrive in specific target markets. And outsiders are so quick to be like, this is stupid. This is moronic. There's bigger things going on in the world or whatever. But like, think about, you know, why are there so many freaking podcasts about men's hobbies? And like, do people make fun of it? I don't know. Like, I... But I just and actually what I mean more so than men is women talking to other women about podcasts is the the kind of like subconscious bias, I think, that that operates in in, uh, you know, the way women talk and the things that we talk about. And I think it's worth mentioning there was a study by Quartz I saw they did like the top 400 podcasts, like successful top charting and one in three podcast hosts were women. And only one in 10 were non-white women. I, we need, I, I think it would be helpful to create a, a, a hospitable environment for female talent and for diverse female talent to thrive in this medium that I think is only gaining popularity and isn't going anywhere because we can multitask with the intimacy of having the conversation in our ears and not needing to do it with our eyes. The volume of you know, commentary about rambling, talking too much, talking too fast, vocal fry, this and that. It's I understand that it takes time to get used to somebody's voice. There's quirks of a voice. There's a cadence of a voice. But I don't always think people understand how whether over the airwaves or in conversation, women's voices are spoken about in a, in a hugely sexist manner by women and men. And there is a gap. And I do want people to be mindful of how they speak about women's voices. And I want people to empower women's voices. And I want people to encourage that more women get into podcasting and speak for as long as they damn well please. So long as there's an audience, your opinion doesn't matter. If you like something a woman is doing, you know, the, the, the only way people really gain any interest or traction is, is kind of just by people sharing it. Uh, you know, if you like something, write a positive review, write a positive comment, tweet about it, tag them on Instagram, like tell your friends, try to aid in building a diverse array of women's stories to be told. And I don't want women feeling that want to start and want to get into this space feeling like there isn't room for them or that they'll be too chatty or that their interests are too stupid or that their niche is too unimportant or all of the things we tell ourselves that we don't really feel about ourselves. We're confident and we know how great we are and we know what we have to offer, but we let everybody else tell us what we should be. And the whole point of Miss Americana, to me at least, is like, let's stop living life to constantly avoid anything that might make you like unlikable or imperfect or off-putting. Don't let it be... E it, the, the problem is we think it's easier 
to ignore our own feelings than it is to be disliked or disapproved of. And we need to flip that. At the end of the documentary, Taylor Swift says, I'm trying to be educated as educated as possible and how to respect people. And I think that part of this is trying to be educated as possible in how to prioritize your own self-respect. I too want to wear glitter and resist double standards. I want to do a two-hour podcast on a pop star's documentary and, you know, spend time wondering why she has the sound on her keyboard for the, the keys to click and also discuss her journey with an eating disorder. I, I want to be able to, you know, really put myself out there showing that I can identify wine bottles from the back based on only their top. We'll also tell you about my own experience with trauma and how it impacts me when I'm talking through a really heavy political issue and how I also don't feel heard and why I felt that was such an important thing for Taylor Swift to share. I, 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 I want to be proud of myself and feel like my voice matters and then go make a peanut butter and jelly and watch Vanderpump Rules. We can be multifaceted. We can be whatever we want. We don't have to base it on other people's approval. And we need to work really hard to find our own voice and be louder than the noise in our head. And moreover, we need to use our privilege to have a voice, to advocate on behalf of the voiceless whenever we can. And um, I just think that I learned a lot from this documentary. It was an approachable vehicle to address a lot of really deep issues. And while I'm sure a lot of people will gloss over it and not see it for what it was, I think we all are probably in agreement here that it was really important. It marks a new era. And I personally am interested in opening a bar for women over 30 where we watch, you know, shows that people make fun of us for liking. And, that you know, it's like a he-man, man-haters club. He, she-woman, man-haters club, the opposite of Little Rascals. And... uh we do whatever the hell we want. We don't get hit on. We don't get groped. We watch what we want. We support each other. We laugh. We have deep convos. We have shallow convos. We we allow the karaokeing of, you know, not full songs, not even the American Idol length. No, we just allow people to go to Bridge City and sing the bridges of their favorite songs and feel empowered by the girl power adjacent ones like Not Ready to Make Nice. We do all of these things and we enjoy each other's company and lift each other up. And all the while, I am going to name an elephant graveyard and take back the narrative. That's what I'm currently dreaming about. But anyway, I will wrap this up. Thank you guys for listening. Um, She ends with the song The Archer, which I did a very long analysis of because I thought it was such an interesting depiction of anxiety. And at the time, I could only really reconcile it with assuming that it was about relation, like, you know, friendships and romantic relationships in terms of the, 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 the push and pull of wanting to speak up and wanting to um almost self-sabotage at times and you see yourself doing it and you don't stop it and you feel uh, so confident in who you are all the while thinking who would ever want to stay i'm too complicated and how we have this eternal battle of head and heart that makes us these complicated people filled with anxiety about not really knowing how people are going to react to how we behave because the way we behave and the way we think kind of changes drastically and we project a lot based off of our own experiences and the like and so interesting at the end of this documentary she plays the archer and um i was i had this epiphany of like it ends with like her walking out on stage and it's like the end part where it's like who could stay who could stay 
who could stay and it doesn't finish the line. But the line after that is you could stay. And I was like, oh, my God, we could stay like I will stay. All of that was about the speeches. She's I've got a 100 thrown out speeches. I almost said to you, easy. They come easy. They go. Fans come and go easy. All of her enemies started out friends. She had so many more friends than foes before her reputation fell out. She wants to say all these things. And it's a push and pull of, you know, who could ever leave me, darling? But who could say like, I know I have this magneticism, magneticism of a pop star, but I'm incredibly flawed and I'm incredibly self-conscious. And there's all these things that I'm afraid will alienate you, the fans. And I and I wait, awake in the night, I pace like a ghost. The room is on fire, invisible smoke, and all of my heroes die all alone. Help me hold on to you. She wants to hold on to us. She doesn't want to die alone. And not just, you know, in terms of her family and friends, she has those, but in terms of leaving people over time and as they get older, not aging with them and not caring about them when they're not as shiny. And it, that just took on this new meaning to me that I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, I feel the same way with every passing minute, with every passing word. I have trouble not thinking of the listeners I must be losing or turning off. And I, what I need to focus on far more often is um, those of you that stay. And I'm so grateful. If you made it to this point, my God, is this a two and a half hour review of a movie that's under one and a half hour? <laughs> I think any Taylor Swift fan understands there's there's always more to say. There's always more to analyze. There's always more to gush about. And uh, we are so lucky to have had this lens into her life. And I appreciate her being generous with her, you know, private life that she guards fiercely. And also with um, her, you know, such deep inner thoughts that she hasn't even quite sorted through. But as I said in the very first episode of this podcast, I, I think far more interesting are the stories of women, not at the end of their narrative when it's an anecdote, but rather women who are in the thick of it. And uh, I think a lot of us are in the thick of it. And I think Taylor Swift is, too. And I just thought this was such a special, special time capsule of an important time in history and uh, a real evolution of her as an artist that I've devoted a lot of time and airspace to. And I just was so grateful that she did this documentary. So anyway, guys, I'll let you go. There'll be another episode this week. Just give me till Thursday. Uh, this one I didn't want to put ads in, but I got a, I'm going to put out another episode Thursday. I'm not sure which one it'll be. TBD. Um, and yeah, thank you for your support and love. And uh, don't forget, there's, I think, at least a half hour, maybe 40 minutes of like, thoughts i had that didn't make the cut don't can't promise they're good <laughs> gotta be all over the place <laughs> that's at patreon.com slash be there in five and uh i hope the dixie chicks forgive me for this outro but it just feels so good so good uh anyway guys find me on instagram at be there in five leave a review if you'd like uh join be there in fives totally casual breezy facebook group by my book twinkle twinkle social media star subscribe and listen to this podcast again i hope uh and uh yeah as always let me know your thoughts and i will let you know mine i'll be there in five i swear 